Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I am very pleased today to welcome Guy Standing to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Guy is a professorial research associate at SOAS, University of London, and a founding member and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, a non-governmental organisation that promotes a basic income for all. Guy was a programme director in the UN's International Labour Organisation and has advised many international body and governments on social and economic policies. His latest book is Blue Commons, Transforming the Economy of the Sea. Thank you very much, Guy, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you about crucial issues, really vital issues today, and we're seeing the threat of extinction in every part of the world, and particularly in what I'm calling the blue economy, the vital 70% of the world's surface, which is covered by sea. And uh, the book is about how we are losing access to resources, and we're seeing a system of what I call rentier capitalism destroying vital parts of the blue economy. Very interesting, very interesting. And in a moment, I I will ask you a little bit uh, indeed about the title of the book. But just before we we, we go into that, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work, Guy? Yes, I'm an an economist. I've been a professor of economics in a number of universities with a PhD from Cambridge. And I've been interested ever since I've finished my studies and worked in the United Nations with what has been called the neoliberal economics revolution that began with Thatcher and Reagan. And I was working in particular on the development of international labor markets when I was working in the International Labor Organization. And I came to realize that we have moved out of what some people call a neoliberal era the pursuit of free markets and so-called deregulation. Instead, we moved into a system of what I call rentier capitalism. And rentier capitalism means that more and more of the income and wealth flows to the owners of property, financial property, physical property, and increasingly intellectual property. And in that context, my early work was on the changing class structure in the world and the growth of the precariat, a book I've written which has been translated into 24 languages and is about the growth of millions and millions of people living in chronic insecurity 
in a situation of growing inequalities. And it was in that context that I advocated more than 30 years ago that we would need a basic income for everybody as an anchor to give people basic security and to enhance their ability to live uh, securely in, in a market economy. And that theme of basic income led me to be a co-founder of the Basic Income Earth Network, which has thousands and thousands of members now all over the world. And this led to the work of the commons. And I wrote a book uh, in 2019 called Plunder of the Commons. And the argument is that throughout history, right from the Justinian Codex of AD 529 that brought together all the early laws of the Roman Empire and formed the basis of common law, we have seen the acceptance of four types of property. We have seen private property, state property, property that belongs to nobody, and the commons. And if you look through our history, our British history, and the history of all democracies, it's been a struggle to retain what people believe and accept is the commons for common use. It's not just land and, and greenery and so on, but all the institutions that belong to all of us inherited uh, as part of our common wealth. And I... When I was looking at how we have lost our commons and the injustices of enclosure and encroachment and commodification and privatization of what used to be commons to owned by everybody, I realized that there was one area that had not been treated properly as a commons, and that is the sea. And right from the AD 529 all the way through Magna Carta, through the Charter of the Forest of 1217, which I discuss in, the, in this book, we have seen that uh, under different governments, they've accepted that there is a commons and that the sea and what's in the sea are a commons. But this has been transformed in the past 50 years, and that's the essence of the book. Yes. Uh, fascinating book it is indeed, and very wide-ranging and uh, very, very worrying indeed. Um, but before we go into the discussion of the book, there's no shortage of interlinked environmental and other crises, and, and, and many which you've written about over the years. Just wondering right now what in particular worries you the most, Guy? Well, I think it's the coming together of a series of crises. We have a crisis of chronic insecurity of people, which is linked to the loss of nature. We have a crisis of inequalities of different kinds. We have a crisis of political populism, which is derived from people living in fear. And this is all connected with the opportunistic disregard 
for preserving the commons and preserving nature in general. And the, the sort of hypocritical language and the rhetorical commitment to things like net zero and preservation of the species and so on is very worrying because when it comes to uh, any political discourse, very quickly those things get put aside and we have politicians of left of centre, right of centre, parroting that we need to maximise economic growth. And they do so with a disregard for the obvious realisation that if you try and maximize growth, particularly when you have a very strong financialized system that prefers short-term profits to long-term investment and sustainability, you are going to accelerate the crises of the species, of global warming, and so on. And it's this coming together of a political, economic, and ecological crisis which is making it so difficult for those of us who are really alarmed about the pursuit of rapid economic growth without a, a, a program to revive the commons and revive nature that is so alarming. We are at a very critical point, which I call a transformational moment, in which we could go either way. We could have another very dark period of authoritarian populism with neo-fascist governments. And we've seen it very nearly with Trump, and we've seen it very nearly with a number of European governments. We don't need to go into that, but we know that we are very much endangered by the threat of a very undemocratic uh, neo-fascist populism. And therefore, we are on a dangerous point, but we also have an opportunity. And that I think I've tried to convey in the book, the latter part of the book, where we could have a, a new progressive political and economic agenda that would combine reviving the commons, reviving a sense of nature as partnership with us as humans, and a way of redressing the chronic insecurities that I mentioned at the outset. But it is a close-run thing, to put it mildly, whether we're going to get a dark period coming or a new transformation. And it's going to re require considerable political courage, which we don't see at the moment around us. We don't see it uh, in the Labour Party, if I may say so. We don't see it certainly in the Conservative Party in Britain. But we don't see it in most political, old-style political parties in the United States or in continental Europe either. So we, we need a new progressive politics, in my view. And my books from 2011 with the Precariat through the Plunder of the Commons and this one um, have been trying to articulate what that progressive agenda could be. Yeah, very interesting. It, it reminds me of the quote, that, um, I, I, I think the, is it Kenneth Boulding, who said, anybody who believes exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world 
uh, is either a madman or an economist. Um, and the economic ideas underlying that are, I, I think, quite important. And, uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, I, I know you, you talk about the blue economy and degrowth and so forth. But before we, we, we move on, um, when you look around, when you look around today, what seeds of optimism or what gives you optimism? Well, what gives me optimism is the energy of the young, particularly those who've had the opportunity to go on to tertiary education, and the realization that they are mainly in the precariat. Since my book on the precariat was published in 2011, the first edition, it's now the fifth edition, I've given well over 600 presentations in over 40 countries. And what's given me pleasure and hope, if you like, is that of the thousands and thousands of people to whom I've spoken, I get the feeling that they are looking for what I've called a new politics of paradise. They are not cynical and detached, as some people like to portray them. They're waiting for a, a new agenda, a new sense, a new vocabulary to a certain extent, a new progressive energy. But I think we are seeing the beginnings of that. We saw a sort of false dawn in the Occupy movement and the Arab Spring and everything uh, in 2011-2012. But today what does fill me with some optimism is that certain ideas that were very marginal back then, are now mainstream. The thing that I've been advocating for many, many years, basic income, we now have majority support in many, many countries across Europe, across continental Europe. Over 60% in opinion polls are in favor of a basic income. When I started working on the subject, people thought it was a mad idea, totally unaffordable and going to cause all sorts of problems. Now we have sufficient evidence that, that that is not true and that it it is actually a sensible way of giving people some control of their time and in orienting them to want to preserve nature and spend more time in volunteering and community work and so on. So I think we're getting we're getting the the, the shoots of a new uh, emancipatory uh, agenda forming, and of course. I mean, since you and I started work on these issues many years ago, there has been an, an incredible enlightenment about the sense of the threat, uh, the ecological threat. Today, knowledge is deeply felt, and the anger that goes with that knowledge is a deep anger. And I think this is a healthy anger because unless we have anger about it, we're not going to force the politicians to move away from their short-term support for profiteering and big corporate uh, interests and finance and so on. And I think that we, we should be encouraging that anger in constructive ways, in ways that say, look, it is up to you to participate in the public agora, in the polis, and to champion these things, because as a famous saying goes, 
the champions of progress are the champions of the impossible until they become possible and essential. And that, I think, is where we are today. That's a, a great vision, Guy. Um, now, your book, uh, I was just uh, uh, looking at the title again and I'm wondering about that, The Blue Commons, Rescuing the Economy of the Sea. And I was just struck by the focus on the economy of the sea rather than maybe the, you know, the, the health of the sea or you know, the sea through an environmental lens. It's rather through an economic lens, which is obviously an ongoing story with respect to the environment and nature generally. But I'm wondering what you were trying to capture there in that title, Guy. Yeah, the Blue Commons, the, the title, is basically saying that the sea from history has always belonged to all of us. And we should be the trustees and the stewards of the sea and all of the fish and the species and the minerals and the uh, other aspects of the sea that exist, and that we've been deprived of it. And we've been deprived of the commons because economic interests have wanted to make profit from the sea. And what we've seen is that from the earliest age when the seas were the commons, we've seen a remarkable change in the 20th century in which there was the biggest enclosure uh, in the history, in human history. And it's the enclosure of 200 nautical miles from the coasts of all countries, which were converted from being a commons into being state property under the UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea of 1982, which was uh, inspired by what's called the Truman Declaration of 1945, which unilaterally declared that 200 nautical miles from all around the coast of the United States was U.S. property. And that led to other countries doing the same, and then eventually in 1982 to that becoming a globalized thing. Once you've, once you've had a mass enclosure of a vast part of the Earth's surface, then that's allowed the next stage to go along, which is the privatization by governments of access to resources, be it fish, be it minerals, be it energy, and so on. And it's the, the, the fact that economic interests have been allowed to prevail over the reproductive interests, the preservation interests, which are inherent to a commons. The essence of a commons is to preserve, to preserve and pass on to the next generation the commons as you receive them. That's a very different mentality from a treatment of something as a resource to be used for making and maximizing profits. And it's because the 
blue commons have been converted increasingly into a zone of profit-making and increasingly been subject to financialization, where big finance has been brought in to finance commercial fisheries, to get benefit from subsidies, to develop aquaculture and turf people off their commons and convert them into export-oriented commercial ventures. And latterly, deep-sea mining that I discuss in, in the course of the book, that there's been a great acceleration in the depletion of what is in the sea. And it's the looking at it as an economic set of issues, one can see that unless we have a revival of a commons mentality and a commons sense of preservation, we will see that continued pursuit of short-term profits by private equity, by the World Bank, by um, big finance, JP Morgan, Citibank, and so on, which are financing rapid growth through depletion and overfishing and all sorts of other things discussed in the book. And unless we reverse that, unless we put finance back into its cage, as it were, we are going to see a, a, a rush to extinction, as we're seeing at the moment. And that is why I think looking at it as an economic lens is something that hasn't been done really. It's not just an ecological you know, sob story. It is a story about structural rentier capitalism profiteering in the sea. And yeah, the, yeah. the crimogenic nature of that, I expose in, in one of the chapters, incredible amount of corruption and uh, state corporate corruption that passes off across the world, which is a, a horrific story in my view. Absolutely. And I'd like to talk about that in, in a little bit of detail. And one of the interesting, uh, something I've observed, uh, I haven't really talked too much about the comments on, on this podcast, but just talking to people generally, it's quite interesting. Uh, I don't know how to generalize from this, but the, the idea of the tragedy of the commons seems to be very well known. This idea that if there's a piece of land there and, you know, the ownership, for example, isn't clear and it's commons that uh, so, some version of the idea that, you know, it'll be a free for all and it'll be depleted and destroyed and so forth. And it's quite interesting that uh, that idea ignores the vital work which you highlight of Eleanor Ostrom about the commons. And I'm just wondering whether you could maybe clarify that. What is the version of the tragedy of the commons that people are familiar with? and why it's not an accurate reflection? Well, the, the tragedy of the commons, as you know, was uh, the subject of a, an essay written by Garrett Harding in, in 1968. He was a Malthusian, and uh, he later came to uh, regret uh, what he'd written because he said he should have called his article uh, the tragedy of the unmanaged commons. And Eleanor Ostrom, as you mentioned later, and she got the Nobel Prize in 2009, basically said that looking back, she'd realized that the commons as such, and she drew her inspiration from uh, looking at villages in Switzerland, um, existed because they were managed 
They were governed by what we call commoners. And that is the essence of the commons throughout history. Hardin was completely wrong. He was talking about open access. A commons is owned and governed by and for commoners. And the commoners have a vested interest in preserving their community, preserving their resource base, passing it on to their children and their grandchildren, and acting as trustees, as stewards. And that is the essence of the commons. It was a dishonest article, and many people have correctly pointed that out, and I discuss it in the book. Better saying, a better saying would be the tragedy of decommoning. When a commons is lost and converted into an enclosure privately owned, the private owner can pursue profits and maximize profits. And that's often done by depleting resources. Because if you use the resources, you can get bigger profits and make more money. And you can use that money to invest somewhere else and you can grow personally. So you have what I what I call the, what I, not me, but it's called the Lauderdale Paradox, which was an essay in 1804 written by the Earl of Lauderdale, who said he noticed that as private wealth, private riches increase, public wealth diminishes. And that has always been the case. So when you get a pursuit of private profits without respect for the commons, notice what I'm saying, without respect for the commons, then you get a total unbalanced situation. And of course, finance, particularly private equity, doesn't respect long-term interests. When you talk about this 200 nautical miles, this massive enclosure and so forth, is it less the fact that this, the ownership was taken, as it were, than the governance and what was done with that in the sense that presumably governments have the interest of the people, at least at a theoretical level. So if a government uh, has, has uh, ownership of a particular asset, with a purview, with 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 a view to uh, looking after that, or or that it's in, it's doing it in a sense for the people because if it's owned by the government, it's 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 for the people. But what you're suggesting, if I'm right, is that that it's it's more about that who who benefits from that that the actual enclosure, as it were, if it was explicitly uh, made 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 for the the commons, or that that governance was was made explicit that mightn't have been such a problem. Yeah, you see, the the original uh, architect of the UNCLOS, the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, was a Maltese uh, diplomat, Arvid Prado, um, who I discuss in the book. And he wanted the seas to be the common heritage of mankind, of humankind, if you like. And he was determined that that if there was to be a United Nations convention, it should preserve the seas and what's in the seas for the benefit of everybody. And he wept almost literally as the big powers 
carved up control of the sea and came up with this 200 nautical mile rule. And what has happened, of course, is the big countries, primarily the United States, which managed to get nearly 12 million square miles of of sea for its property, and France and Britain and got about 6 million square miles because of their foreign territories. It was an act of neocolonialism, really, whereas China got 900,000 square miles, which was a, a square kilometers, which was nothing compared with what the United States, Britain and France and uh, Australia got. And that's created a geopolitical crisis today that we could mention. I mentioned it in the book. But what your point was is that by giving it into the state ownership, that enabled governments to privatize and commodify the ocean in particular ways. And I think it's, uh, it's not, it's not being too uh, fanciful to say that governments have represented interests, particular interests more than others. Now you take the North Sea oil, for example, Britain uh, privatized and sold off uh, to the multinationals the North Sea oil uh, under Thatcher, which gave the country windfall gain. They, they gained a lot of money from that sale and it allowed them to cut taxes. Meanwhile, Norway, very differently, preserved the North Sea oil reserves for Norway and set up a fund along the lines that I recommend towards the end of the book, whereby the royalties of renting out to companies were invested for the people of Norway. And today, the value of the North Sea oil owned by Norway is vastly superior to what Britain has done. It was, to me, it was an economic crime. But what's happened as well is that even fisheries have been privatized. Now, there is no reason why access to uh, our fish populations around Britain, for example, should be sold off to a handful of corporations so that you get sort of five families owning a vast percentage of the fish quota of Britain. And they have broken the law and been convicted of breaking the law, but are still allowed to own it. So 4% of the commercial fisheries uh, operating in Britain have over three quarters of the quota that they own. Now, that that is not for the common interests. That's the interests of a very small minority of corporations. And it's the same with, with deep sea mining and mining of, of uh, resources. You can sell licenses to a handful of corporations and they can make huge profits from trawling the seabed and getting minerals, but that's not for the benefit of the people of Britain. It's for the benefit of those corporations, first and foremost. Yes, they may to pay some taxes, but you are, you are actually selling off the family silver, as McMillan famously said. 
And that's allowing the short-term pursuit of profit and, and a depletion of the resource base. So we're, we're seeing that, and it goes together with, with a lot of extremely dubious ecological practices. Boris Johnson boasted, for example, that 26% of the sea uh, around Britain is in protected areas. And that sounds great until you realize that almost none of those protected areas are actually protected from deep sea uh, bottom trawling by super trawlers. Now, this is ridiculous. It's pretending to be preserving our, our seabed, but allowing Russian and other trawlers make huge profits from our seabed. Yes, I'm interested in uh, what you're talking about in terms of the, I guess you call it maybe the governance of the commons in a sense where That's you can right. understand to some extent the idea of a, you know, a piece of land, uh, local communities working together. What about something like this that's, you know, at, at a national level or it's vast? What is the kind of model, I suppose, you'd call of the governance? How would that operate in terms of uh, something being structured for the benefit of the commoners? Right. Well, I discussed that in, in Chapter 10 and, and Chapter 11, how that can be achieved. And there are some wonderful examples of uh, commons governance that are still strong and that some are being strengthened as we speak. And what that essentially means is that you, you put local communities in primary charge. doesn't mean that government, central government, doesn't take any role. They must play a regulatory role um, of some sort. But basically, the people who have most interest in preserving what is in the sea are people who live in and around that area of the sea. It stands to reason. It's always been shown to be the case. And you do have situations where governance is devolved largely to those communities and they operate to restrict illegal fishing, for example, or restrict overfishing or restrict bycatch, which is a huge problem. Whereas commercial fisheries are interested in maximizing their catch. And it's reckoned by the FAO, and I mentioned these statistics in the book, that over half of all fish caught by commercial industrial fisheries are illegal. In other words, they exceed quotas, they exceed what is meant to be, to be the limit of allowable catches in the areas in which they fish. And they do it with impunity because they are providing uh, donations to political parties or they are protected by some commercial interests and they belong to an international seafood chain uh, of some sort. And I document various cases of where finance, big corporations like Citibank and, and JP Morgan and HSBC have been openly funding commercial companies that are known to have been breaking the laws. Whereas local people, they don't want to do that. They want to make sure that their children and their community 
are revived and preserved, and they acted in that way. I'm also saying in the final chapter that there should be a reform of our tax system so that people who are taking from our commons illegitimately have to pay levies or taxes into a commons fund that could be used to give commoners basic security and help revive commons communities. So for me, I think thinking along the lines of a commoner is a way of seeing a, a way out of this dystopia that is existing at the moment. Uh, very interesting. Now, I, I realize we, we need to discuss and I, w- I want to uh, hear your your overview of, of you know what's actually been going on the state of the fisheries the the uh the, the risks of mining uh what, what's already happening there's deep bottom, sea bottom trawling but um yeah so so i'd like to discuss in a moment with you the main treaties that are in place the main ways that the the seas are uh organized governed and and the forces that are in play the economic interests that are as you say abusing that but before that maybe can you maybe just give us a little bit of an overview of what worries you the most the, the state of affairs yeah well, let me let me give you a couple of statistics uh if you were a commercial fisherman around britain today your hourly catch if you were out fishing even though you've got really much more efficient equipment than 100 years ago your hourly catch would be about 5% of what uh, your ancestor 100 years ago would have caught we are at a point where fish stocks or fish populations have been depleted to the point where they are really threatened with total collapse. And that applies to the cod populations in the North Sea. It applies to uh, fishing uh, populations all over the world. The areas that are being plundered most are around Africa, where they have fishing access agreements. And the emergence of long-distance fisheries has decimated uh, fish populations everywhere. If I give you one statistic that should be worrying everybody, in 1985, China had 13 long-distance fishing boats, in other words, big enough to go across the world. Today, it has 17,000. And those 17,000, many of which are 200 meters long, they have... Uh, trawl the seabed. We have some, the Russians have some, the Americans. So it's not a one country problem, but the sheer number of these huge vessels. Another statistic is that of the 73 marine conservation zones that it meant to exist in Britain, 71 were shown by Greenpeace to be systematically subject to bottom trawling by super trawlers. We see a situation in which now the frontier of the blue economy is suddenly going into deep sea mining. Now, deep sea mining was meant to be protected and controlled and regulated by the 
International Seabed Authority set up under UNCLOS, which has its headquarters in two little buildings in Kingston Harbour in Jamaica. Now, the ISA is meant to regulate deep sea mining for the whole world, all the deep sea areas of the world. And it has a total budget of $7 million a year. That is absolute drop in the ocean, to coin a phrase. And it cannot regulate because it hasn't agreed on a code of mining. And it's allowed big corporations to take extract vast profits from exploration licenses, which are decimating the seabeds around various countries as we speak. And this situation has been allowed because under the international governance system, the regulatory uh, elements are fragmented into a vast variety of institutions, none of which have very effective power. And at the moment, we are seeing something that has not quite come to the consciousness of politicians, but we have the intellectual property rights system set up by TRIPS, the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property, set up by the World Trade Organization or for the World Trade Organization in 1994, which globalized American intellectual property rights. And the relevance of that is that it established uh, the strength of patenting. And today, we are seeing a situation where a handful of corporations are taking out patents on thousands and thousands of marine genetic resources, giving them a monopoly income flow for 20 years. Now, there's one company which has 47% of all the patents, and that's the German chemical company, BASF. Now, that situation has meant that we are about to see a bonanza of property being extracted through mining without regulatory control and without it being for the benefit of the commoners of the world. It's the benefit of a small number of financial corporations and multinational corporations. And one doesn't have to be a radical leftist to be alarmed by this financialization and conglomeration of control over a depleted set of resources. So for me, it's not just about fish. It's not just about minerals. It's about all aspects, including aquaculture, which I haven't mentioned so far, which is a major theme in the book. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, uh, terrifying to think that this patenting is going on uh, as we speak, as it were, and, and, and presumably increasing as well. And that's the, uh, sure. the, 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 the governance that surrounds all of this is interesting. So who, who gets to say, who sets the rules? And um, in what way do economic interests, shall we say, take advantage well, I mean, in the case of patents, if if um, a corporation or an institute 
discovers something or uh, or discovers a process or a product that it can make from the sea, it can patent it under the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, which is based in Geneva. And they file for a patent. And if the patent is granted, as it usually is, that means that that corporation owns that product and that process and can make monopoly profits for 20 years, during which time nobody else can produce with that process or produce that product. And that is monopoly control. And we have a situation we have a situation where we have a we have over 15 million patents are in force today across the world. And that is a rent-seeking device contrary to any notion of a free market. It's complete nonsense to talk about a free market economy when you have an intellectual property system that gives so much monopoly to a handful of corporations. And what you what you find, in fact, is that if and this I discuss in chapter eight of the book, that just three countries uh, own seventy six percent of all the patents taken out in the sea. It's the United States, Germany, and Japan. Whereas a country like Britain has just missed the proverbial bus and has got, has got practically nothing. So the corporations that have the the patents will make super profits. And a few countries will be beneficiaries of being the headquarters of those privileged corporations. But it is as far from being a commons as you can possibly imagine. And that is why it is so dangerous and so worrying and that must be reformed. And we should be aware of what's happening before we can do anything. Yeah, no, that, that's that's absolutely right. And you said also that something like 50% of the fishing is, is illegal or the, the catch, uh, I don't know whether it's from the long-distance fisheries. Um, how is that possible that that goes on? Well, as you can imagine, yeah, as you can imagine, the uh, when you're fishing long-distance with boats way out at sea, uh, you have to have a pretty good monitoring system to make sure they don't break the rules. And what's happened is that uh, com- powerful countries, including United States and European countries, uh, Japan, Russia, and China, have made fishing agreements with developing countries where they agree to pay the country a sort of royalty for having uh, a monopolistic fishing right in their waters, in the economic exclusive economic zones of those countries. So you take Senegal or Mauritania as a classic examples, where China has a fishing agreement with the government. And it turns out, as I document in the book, that basically the, the country with the long-distance fishing boats uh, and the, the obvious... examples, they overfish and they pay the country governments about 5% of the 
gross revenue or the net profits often of the fish they catch. But it gives the country governments and the few local politicians who are party to bribery, etc., a situation where they aren't really powerful enough to complain about overfishing. It's known to be taking place. It's been documented by the Food and Agricultural Organization, among others, and it's allowed to proceed with impunity. Okay, it's not just in developing countries where the corruption is leading to a depletion of the fish populations and terrible effects on marine life in general. I give some examples in Britain, the famous black scam case in Scotland in 2011, when the big fishing families uh, who were given by the British government a huge amount of quota were caught one night with something like 170,000 kilos of illegally caught uh, fish exceeding the quota. And they got a slap over the wrist, but were allowed to continue to fish and continued to keep their quota. Hardly a disincentive for them to break the law again and again and again. The same in south of England, one of the largest boats uh, fishing boats uh, of all time, was caught with 632,000 kilos of illegal mackerel catch. It was taken to Bodmin Court, fined 96,000 pounds, and then allowed to sell all the fish and make for over 400,000 pounds profit. In other words, it, it, it paid them to break the law. And they were allowed to continue. And they, I could give you other examples that are given in the book. Unless we have strong governance by the government on behalf of the commons, that's all of us, we are going to see a depletion of all of our, our fish and the seabed and the minerals will be following. So for me, this is a governance failure that is international and national. And how, in your experience... Do uh, commoners like ourselves uh, deal with that and, and, and provoke change? Well, I think it's very important, Virgil, to appreciate what I said at the beginning of our discussion, which is that the commons belong to all of us. They belong to all of us as equals, which we inherit and going back to common law, everything in the sea and the sea itself is a commons. The fish, the minerals, the energy, everything belongs to all of us. And if governments give them away to spe special interests, whoever that, those interests might be, then they're depriving us of our heritage. And therefore we should be compensated and we should demand that the commons as an ethics, a commons as a way of living and a way of reproduction are reproduced and revived. And I think that's vitally important. It goes, it goes across the old divide of left and right in politics. It says, look, the commons belongs to all of us and governments should act as the stewards 
the trustees responsible for preserving the value that we've inherited and passing it on to the next generation in at least as good a condition as our generation finds the commons. And they don't do that at the moment. And this is, I think, a great failing of the system. But I'm also proposing in the books how we might revive the commons as an ethos, as a way of sharing, as a way of focusing on reproduction, sustainability, respect for nature, and a sort of thrivability in, in the way we treat the sea and everything in the sea. It doesn't exist for us to maximize economic growth, as some people are allowing at the moment. It exists as part of our heritage and in which we all have a shared interest. And I think that the essence of my message in the latter part of the book is that we need to focus on examples and ways in which we can revive the commons. You do in your book identify various different inspiring uh, approaches, I suppose. Could you identify a couple of those that you think we could learn from ways in which the the uh, maybe governments that are, are, are taking on board some of these ideas of the commons or maybe some projects where, where, where the commoners themselves are taking action uh, to, to yeah. you know, uh, remedy some of these uh, governance and other issues? Yeah, well, I think there is there are two angles here. One is that I believe that depriving all of us of the blue commons by allowing exploitation of the resources, depletion of the fish, depletion of the minerals, that means we should all be compensated. And what I'm proposing in the book is that Blue Commons Capital Funds, the equivalent of sovereign wealth funds, should be established with a sort of fiscal reform in which we are imposing taxes on those who are taking from the sea, exploiting it, and not paying the full costs uh, of their production, let alone uh, for the taking of the resources. Building funds like that had wonderful examples, including the Alaska Permanent Fund, where uh, royalties from the oil from off Alaska are paid into a fund which is built up. And from that fund, every Alaskan citizen receives a dividend each year. There are many other examples from uh, island economies around the world where Similar sort of experiments have been done, often not based on oil, but on based on uh, taking of fish or taking of sand or whatever it might be. And there's even an example in the Shetlands where they've set up such a fund and every Shetlander now benefits from the fund, receiving tremendous uh, benefits. Similarly, in, in Norway, where the Norwegians had the wisdom when they discovered the North, their North Sea oil to create a capital fund and put the royalties into the fund and build it up. And now it means that effectively every Norwegian is a millionaire, 
whereas Britain made the, the terrible uh, error, which I would regard as an economic crime, of privatizing our North Sea oil, taking windfall gains from selling off to the oil companies, and then lowering taxes for wealthy groups. But now we have no benefits from the North Sea oil. We're even paying out subsidies to the companies to decommission oil rigs. It, it requires a, a sense of wanting to revive the commons. And that, I think, can be done through various forms of levies yeah. on what is, what is taking place. But there are other examples which I think you have in mind where we've seen uh, local communities being enabled to take control of their local marine resources. And there are wonderful examples where they've set up uh, governance structures where locals have authority to control what is done, what is not done in and around uh, their seabeds. And the most wonderful of all, in my view, is the example in Denmark, at the moment, which has set up sea allotments, community gardens in the sea, where individual families now have plots in the sea, just as we have allotments in Britain across the country, precisely the same principles. And they've led to revival and a focus on reproduction, a focus on not overfishing and preserving the the, the conditions of the sea and so on. And there are other examples from Korea and around the world, which may be small scale in themselves, but are wonderful and potentially enlargeable, upscalable, if you like. Oh, it's very interesting. And I, 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 I certainly the, the Danish example and other examples like that I find very inspiring. I just wonder about this idea of compensating. And it seems like a kind of secondary solution. Surely... Uh, and, and I think you, you, you do uh, say this also in the book, surely the first resort is, is punishment and regulation, which is to say you don't do this and you're punished. It's, it's you know, th- that has to be the first place to say this is not right, this is not acceptable. Um, the kind of compensation mechanisms which you're talking about, and it's, it's more than that as well, but um, I'm just wondering, you know, how you draw the line there, Guy? I, I think that- that's a very good question, which I address in, in Chapter 11. I think you, we have to have a stronger regulatory system. At the moment, it's a chaotic, ineffectual regulatory system, which has been captured largely by corporate interests, who, which have a, a vested interest in making sure that the regulatory system is efficient, ineffective uh, and even regressive. We need to make sure that the the commoners, the ordinary people who have an interest in preserving the sea, are part of the governance structure and part of the regulatory uh, system. It is ridiculous, for example, that the International Seabed Authority is dominated largely by uh, mining companies and they're able to pay $500,000 to get licenses to explore and make huge profits from the sea while there's no effective code of regulatory behavior. I think that that has to be strengthened enormously. Ditto with the way that subsidies are allowed at the moment. Every year, year after year, 
we have pronouncements by the UN and the FAO and the WTO that they're going to strengthen control over subsidies. And year after year after year, there's failure in that respect. So you're absolutely right. We need stronger regulatory uh, systems. And then those regulatory systems must be more punitive. Now, for example, let me give an example, which is that uh, big cruise liners in the sea and big these huge container ships, they go into the ports and they're using the most filthy diesel fuel. And many of those boats deliberately keep their engines running the whole time they're in the port. Now, you take Southampton, where the air around Southampton is so poisoned and polluted because of these these boats that the incidence of throat cancer is enormously higher than anywhere else in Britain. And it's the same in Marseille and other, other ports. Huge number of premature deaths are due to throat cancers in, in and around port areas. Well, clearly, obviously, there should be stronger regulations to prevent that happening. And the, it should be punitive to the point where, A, they, they stop keeping their motors going, and B, they shift to different types of, uh, of fuel. The same with, with, with a carbon tax, which I believe we've got to have. But you can't have a carbon tax, or you won't get it politically, unless we have a, a mechanism to recycle the revenue from carbon tax to pay out dividends to everybody, because otherwise it will be regressive. It will make inequalities greater and people will not support it. But if we guarantee that the revenues are put into a fund and then recycled to ordinary people, then we'll get the political support for those things. Yeah. Same with, with noise. One of the yeah. biggest problems in the sea, which is unappreciated, is the noise of engines which are killing off whale populations and, and certain types of fish populations which are affected by noise. So there are many things you, we could do through regulations, through punitive taxes, and to encourage a shift in behavior. But unless the costs are increased for those who are doing those things, we won't get change. Absolutely. No, I, it's a striking, striking and horrific uh, image, really, of just the way the wanton activities of these um, well, corporations and various rapacious organizations when it comes to the sea. Um, one thing we didn't really talk about, and um, and I, I, I know you, this is something that you, you talk about in the book, that the blue economy, as it were, uh, doesn't really feature in, in, in when, when it comes to ideas about green growth and things like that. And I'm just wondering, there are myriad conferences, The Economist and Financial Times and, and lots of financial institutions and the blue economy and things like that and and the 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 the, the possibilities <laughs> and, and 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 tremendous momentum apparently and an excitement about this what what are your thoughts on this yeah i mean i'm very disturbed uh, about the ineffective series of international conferences uh, often funded by corporations that have a vested interest in their failure if you like 
and uh, the ineffectual nature of the process ever since UNCLOS in 1982. We've had so many conferences. I've got a section called meetings, meetings, meetings. And the meetings have been dominated by the powerful, by financial corporations and so on. And we have a situation where uh, I think things will only change when we realize the extent of the damage being done in the blue e economy. And the trouble is, of course, that we don't see what is going on. We can see if something on land is happening because we can visualize it and we pass it or whatever. But most of the damage that is being done in the sea is damage to the seabed, which none of us see. It's dam damage done well out of sight of land, and it's damage done uh, by powerful interests that we don't really have much contact with. And I think that the first and foremost concern I have today in 2022 is that the very nature of green politics must be broadened to become green-blue politics. The, we must remember that the sea covers 70% of, of the world's surface and the one-third of the world's population live right next to the sea, more, it's about 40%. And the, their interests are largely neglected in ecological politics. You'll see very few discussions of what should be done in the sea. And I think the emphasis on blue growth since 2008 in these international conferences is partly because uh, finance knows it can make huge short-term profits, private equity through uh, aquaculture, through minerals, through fishing and so on. And we're not we're not aware enough of what is being done uh, in our name, if you like. So I think I think the first concern I have today is to force politicians through our own efforts and publicity and through discussions like we're having to give much higher priority to what happens in the sea. Our seas are precious and they're part of our heritage, and we should want to reproduce them in all their splendor. And at the moment, that's not happening. The opposite is happening. So for me at the moment, it's, it's a crisis, but it's a crisis largely out of sight and out of attention from politicians. And I'm very pleased that a number of those, including Caroline Lucas, who's read my book and, and uh, is very much concerned with what's happening in the sea um, are gradually going, giving it more attention. But we certainly need to do far, far more to give it a very high priority today. Well, I think the work that you're doing, your research, your writing and your activism is, is, is very important in, in, in that way. What's next for you, Guy? Well, I, as, as I say, I'm enthused by two things, really. I'm enthused by the fact that discussion of the commons, 
whether it be on land or in the sea, is something that a lot of people from diverse backgrounds get. They understand it. Once you start explaining what the commons are, what they've meant, how they've been taken, how illegitimate the taking has been, once you start saying the commons is so important as a part of our structure, our social structure, our social protection system, the nature of our society, once you start that sort of discourse, people start saying, yes, yes, that's happened. I don't like that. That's happened to our rivers. That's happened to our institutions. That's happening to our seabed. They get that. And that crosses classes and interests in a very powerful way. So I'm happy to see that this understanding of the commons is growing. And the second part, which relates to the commons, is, of course, that it links to all my work on basic income. I believe we are at the cusp of legitimizing a call that everybody in society had, should have a basic income as an anchor to give them basic security, a sense of freedom, and, and, and a sense of common justice based on recycling of revenue gained from demanding compensation for those who are taking our commons. So these two debates that I've been trying to uh, engage in, I think are coming together. And COVID, in a sense, accelerated uh, the latter in particular. Millions of people are now converted and convinced that basic income is feasible and essential. And I think the cost of living crisis, the ecological crisis, the threat of extinction will accelerate the movements towards wanting to revive our commons and change our income distribution system, which is out of control. So I, I'm quite optimistic, but it is dark time at the moment, and we, we shouldn't pretend otherwise. It's a very dangerous time, but it's also a time when everybody who has the energy uh, and capacity should stand up and try to advance the causes in which they believe. That's a great vision, Guy. And thank you so much for all the work you've been doing over many decades and your persistence and sharing today what, what you're working on, the importance of the sea, and, and just how, as you say, how out of sight it is, but how utterly crucial to our future and uh, I wish you the best with your ongoing projects. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.